God in the preaching of His Word, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 3 as we pick up, focusing this morning on verses 30 through 36. As you're turning there, we would like to extend a very warm welcome to all of our visitors and newcomers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for you being with us today and look forward to the opportunity of getting to know you a bit more. And also, just one small correction from one of our announcements, and this is my fault for not putting it in the bulletin. The deacon study tonight starts at 6.30, not not 6 o'clock, so just to clarify on that. John chapter 3, this morning we'll focus on verses 30 through 36, but let us read from verse 22 through verse 36 to get the context before us. Let us hear the Word of God. John 3, beginning in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea, and there He remained with them and baptized. Now John, the Baptist, also was baptizing in Anan near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let us unite our hearts one final time as we seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. If you would, Bow with me and let's pray and ask God's help. Father, as we have all come to gather around Your Word, we pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Father, by nature, what lies within us is darkness and ignorance. We do not know the things of God except for You revealing them to us through the Word of Your Son. We pray, Father, that as we have heard with our ears the reading of the Word of Christ, that also Your Spirit would come and illuminate our hearts to understand the things that are written. 
Father, we entrust ourselves to You. We thank You that You have given to us the precious gift of Your Son who is the great Shepherd of His sheep, who knows precisely how to lead His sheep. You have given all things into His hand and He cares for His church with a peculiar care. Nothing in heaven or on earth can snatch us from His mighty hand. All providence is in His hand. All the events of our lives are in His sovereign care and disposal. We pray that as we hear the words of our great Shepherd, that we would be instructed, that we would be changed, that we would be taught what is pleasing in Your sight. Father, we pray that by Your Spirit we would see in this text glorious views of the person and work of Christ. That we would see how great the gift is that You have given us Your Son. He who is above all and who comes down from heaven not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Father, help us as we come to the preaching of Your Word. Help us to have attentive minds Help us to have tender and humble hearts. We pray that You would conform us and transform us from one degree of glory into the next, into the image of Your Son. Be glorified, Father. We pray for all who are here who are strangers to the Gospel. Father, may they this day hear Christ. May they heed Christ's words. May they recognize the fearful state of having the wrath of God abiding upon them, and may they flee to Your Son for peace and safety, for everlasting life. Father, do it for Your glory, we pray. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up in this section this morning in which we started considering last week John the Baptist's testimony of Christ. And just to remind us a bit of context, John's disciples have caught wind that Jesus' ministry is growing, and at the same time, John the Baptist's ministry is waning. And John's disciples are concerned about this, that Jesus is increasing and John is decreasing, And so they go to John with their concern, expecting John also to be concerned about this. But when they make their concern known to John, what they receive is a rebuke from John. And what we get is this following testimony in which John most magnificently puts forth the supremacy and superiority of Christ above all else. And so let's begin with our exposition this morning, and then we'll move into doctrine, and then lastly, application. Exposition, and it's at this point in particular, if you have your Bibles, please do have them open to John chapter 3 so that you can see for yourself what God is saying to us. Let's begin and pick up where we left off last week and pick up in verse 30. John the Baptist declares to these envying disciples, He must increase, but I must decrease. John informs these envious disciples that if they were grieving now over Christ's success and growth, they will have even more grieving to do when they see what is to come. Because this increase and growth of Christ's ministry is but the beginning of Christ's kingdom. Even this mustard seed-sized 
beginning of the kingdom provoked their jealousy, but John declares to them that it will soon grow into a kingdom that spans the whole world over. Notice, probably in your translation, it says must. It's literally the word in Greek that means it is necessary. It is necessary that Christ increase and that I decrease. And when John says that, that it is necessary for this to happen, he doesn't mean it in the sense like we sometimes say what must be will be. And I guess I just kind of have to accept it and bear it. But he means it is necessary in the sense that this is the divine purpose and John rejoices in it. Christ must have the preeminence because He, not John, is the blessed Son of the Father and all things have been given into Christ's hand. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. Now we already saw in chapter 1, John declared that Jesus ranked before Him because Jesus was before Him. Here, John declares that Jesus is above Him in importance and authority. He who comes from above. That is a testimony of Christ's divine origin. The one, who, uh, the one who became flesh on earth in time, being born as a man, existed as the everlasting Word of God who was with God and who was God. And subsequently, Christ is not only above John, but He is above all. Romans 9, uh, verse 5, Paul, speaking of Christ, says, Who is over all, God blessed forever. Notice that John the Baptist here says that even Christ in His, incarn in his incarnation and His humiliation is presently above all. Even though in His incarnation, as Hebrews says, He was made a little lower than the angels, yet He is still the One who commands the angels. Even though He's the One who came not to be served, but to serve, yet He is the Lord of all. Even though His humanity was sustained by the earth, according to Hebrews 1.3, it is Christ who every moment upholds the universe by the Word of His power. Verse 31, he who is of the earth and uh, is earthly and speaks of the earth, he who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. Okay, now there are, there are two contrasts going on here. There is a contrast of origin between John and Jesus, and subsequently there is a contrast of their testimony that they bring. Notice the two origins are stated in the words, He who is of the earth and He who comes from heaven. Okay, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.47 picks up that same exact language and he says, speaking of Adam, he says, the first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And consequently, because of these two or different origins, there is, a kind, there is a difference and a contrast between the kind of testimony. There's a difference in the testimony of He who speaks in an earthly way and He who comes from heaven. Hebrews 12.25 picks up on this when the writer to the Hebrews contrasts Moses' testimony with Christ's testimony. 
When he says, for if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, that's Moses, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Now, how do we understand this? John including himself as one who is of the earth and speaks in an earthly way. John was a prophet. John was a true prophet, just like all the other uh, Old Testament prophets. And he was a faithful prophet. And yet, speaking of himself, he includes himself in this category who is one who is of the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But that is not true of him who comes down from heaven. And I think pointing you to something we've already seen earlier in the chapter will help us understand what John is getting at here. If you remember earlier in the chapter when Jesus said to Nicodemus, He said to him, if I speak to you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I speak speak to you of heavenly things? Just before that, in verse 10, Jesus told Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Okay, So Christ coming to earth as a man in the Incarnation is not like previous prophets who spoke of things that were revealed to them in visions and dreams. Christ comes and He speaks of heavenly things firsthand. Because for Christ, heaven is His dwelling place. He speaks of what He has seen and what He knows. When when Christ declares to us the divine will concerning our salvation, He's not speaking as one of the Old Testament prophets who was speaking second-hand. He is speaking of what He has heard and what He has seen. And thus, the prophetic office of the Lord Jesus Christ supersedes that of any of the Old Testament prophets. Matthew Henry went as far as to say this, the preaching of the prophets and of John was but low and flat compared with Christ's preaching. As heaven is high above the earth, so were His thoughts above theirs. And then listen to this, by the Old Testament prophets, God spoke on earth, but in Christ He speaks from heaven. Which is why, my friend, we must not refuse to listen to Him who is speaking to us from heaven. Verse 32. Verse 32, and no one receives his testimony. Now, that's a bit of typical hyperbole because the very next words are he who has received his testimony. So we know he doesn't absolutely mean no one has. But think about this. This is, again, John's humility is on display here. Think about what John's disciples were concerned about. They were envious and jealous of how many were going to the Lord Jesus. Meanwhile, John mourns how few have gone to Christ. And John says this, that no one receives his testimony, not only as a matter of astonishment, but he says it as a matter of grief. Because Christ is worthy to be received. His testimony is worthy to be received by every heart And yet, sinners, such is their love of darkness and such is their willful blindness, even when the Son of Righteousness appears before their very eyes, they refuse His testimony. And there's a lesson there for us. We, like John, should not only rejoice to see sinners coming to Christ, but we should also mourn that there are not more coming to Christ and we should pray 
that God would reap a harvest of souls for His name's sake. Verse 33, He who has received His testimony has certified or set His seal to this, that God is true. Now this is the only place in John's Gospel that he uses this word uh, for set his seal or certified. Um, it, is, it is a word that literally speaks of a, a seal or a signet that would be stamped on something to show ownership. And what John is saying is he who receives the testimony of Christ sets his seal to this that God is true. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you need to hear the, opposite, the, the, the contrast of the opposite of what that means. If you're here and you're rejecting Christ, you need to understand that that is not a neutral place to be. But rather, to reject the Son is to call God a liar. It is to set your seal to this that God is not true. Because God has told us that He sent His Son into the world. Because Christ speaks the words of God, and, and excuse me, sorry, I got caught up, mixed up in my manuscript. Because Christ comes as the one who speaks the words of God, as God in the flesh, and He is the ambassador of the Father. And this teaches us how pleasing to God faith is, and how displeasing unbelief is. There is no greater sacrifice we can offer to God than to set our seal through faith that God is true by listening to His Son. And the one who believes Christ's words glorifies the Father because He is adding His hearty amen to the fact that God is true. Not that we make God true by our assent, nor is God made not true even if the whole world rejects His truth, But unbelief is the great insult to God because it charges Him with falsehood. And it asserts that God is a liar. Verse 34, For He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Or I think the ESV probably translates it more helpfully. He gives the Spirit without measure. Receiving Christ's testimony glorifies God because Christ speaks the words of God. Right? To, to listen to Christ's words is to listen to the Father. And to reject the Son's words is to reject the Father who sent Him. And notice here that there's another, another contrast between Christ's office as prophet in which He supersedes all the other Old Testament prophets. John says that Christ speaks the words of God because the Father has given to Him the Spirit without measure. There's a connection between Christ speaking the words of God and possessing the Spirit without measure. Christ, as mediator, was endowed with the Spirit of God to the fullest extent a man could possess Him. The Spirit did not come and go upon the Lord Jesus the way He came and went on the Old Testament prophets, but rather He abided with Christ as His constant companion and helper. Which is why, by the way, I believe that in in the other Gospels when we see men denying the Lord Jesus' works and resisting His teaching, 
Jesus says to, the, to them not that they are blaspheming Him, but they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Christ, as the prophet par excellence, always speaks the words of God because He possesses the Spirit without measure. A commentator named Whitby said this, the prophets of old that had the Spirit in a limited manner only with respect to some particular revelation, sometimes still spoke of themselves, but He that had the Spirit always residing in Him always spoke the words of God. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So, Just as Christ uniquely possesses the Spirit without measure, He also possesses the Father's love without measure. Moses and John are God's servants, but Christ is the beloved Son of the Father. The One whom the Father said in Psalm 2, the Lord has said to me, you are My Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of Me and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's essentially what Jesus is saying, or John is saying here. That the Father has given all things into the hands of His Son. And Christian, we'll we'll talk about this more in our application, or our doctrine. What a great comfort that text is that the Father has given all things into the hand of Christ. Because the Father has given all things into Christ's hand, the Christian can rest assured that he is in the best hands he could be in. All power and authority has been given into the hand of Christ. Providence is in His hand. Our lives are in His hand. All grace has been deposited in His hand so that He can put it into our hands. All the benefits of the covenant of grace are His to dispense to His needy people. All judgment, according to John 5, has been given into the hand of Christ. The Father loves the Son and has appointed the Son as the trustee of all the affairs of providence and redemption. Verse 36, as we close our exposition. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe or disobeys the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Matthew Henry said, if God the Father has put this honor on His Son, we must by faith honor Him. My friend, I want to speak to you briefly here if you're an unbeliever. There is no middle ground To disbelieve in the Son of God is to cut yourself off from the life of God and to remain in the state of being an enemy of God. John says, by not believing in the Son, the wrath of God abides upon you. The wrath of God is already upon you because of your sins. Which means, my friend, you are in danger To be anything but believing in the Son is to condemn your own soul. To be indifferent to Christ is to be against Him. It is to set your seal to this that God is not true. That His Son is not who He said He was. You are saying that the One whom the Father loves and has given all things 
is not worthy of your love and your devotion and your trust. And therefore, the wrath of God abides upon you in that state. But for the one who believes in the Son, he has, present tense, eternal life. Not just will have, but has. It's true, we will have it in its fullness. The, the greatest is yet to come for the Christian. And we know that what He has promised will be, be given to us because we are in the hands of Christ who disposes all things according to His Lordship. And therefore, we can trust Him. But John even says, has everlasting life. If you have union with Christ by faith this morning, you have entered into eternal life. Uh, Matthew Henry said that grace is glory begun. Because you have Christ who is our life. And you have His Spirit. Christ who has the Spirit without measure then gives that same Spirit to His people. And you have the blessedness of of the foretaste of glory in your present communion with God and all of the tokens of His love that He demonstrates to you. That brings us to our doctrine this morning. Doctrine deduced. So we've considered the the exposition, what the text means, how it instructs us, and now we want to turn our attention to the doctrines that are deduced from this passage. In what ways does God instruct us in our understanding of the doctrines of His words? And I've I've got three things for you this morning. Last week I focused in our doctrine more on the things that we could apply to our own lives regarding lessons learned from John the Baptist. This morning, all of my doctrine is going to center upon the person and work of Christ. Because that's the emphasis of this passage. And so I've got three things having to do with the person and work of Christ this morning. The first thing is this. We learn in this passage the incomparable glory of Christ's person and kingdom. Okay? The incomparable glory of Christ's person and kingdom. It's amazing to me, with as little testimony as we have from John the Baptist in the New Testament, one thing we do have over and over from John is an extremely high view of the person of Christ. In fact, I think he is one of the often overlooked testimonies regarding the deity and the incomparable glory of Christ's person. It seems like every other word out of John's mouth is testifying to the heavenly nature of the person of Christ. For instance, from our text, He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. Christian, think about that. In order to come from somewhere, in order to come from above and descend to earth, you had to already what? You already had to exist in heaven before you came to earth. That sentence assumes the pre-existence of the Son with the Father prior to His incarnation. Just like John 1.1, if you can remember back that far, made abundantly clear that this Son existed not only prior to His incarnation, but rather He was the one who was in the beginning before there was anything when He was God and was with God. 
It's, it's similar to when Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Christian, and you know this, but it bears repeating, Christ is not a creature merely like us. He did not become the Son. He was not created. He was not adopted as the Son when He was conceived. Christ is the eternal Word who was with God and was God who became in time flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us in every sense of that Word. Hence, here's the point, hence the reason John is so eager to give Him the preeminence and to speak about Christ in ways that no one else in Scripture is spoken about. Think about it. Where else in the Bible do we see one prophet speaking of another merely human prophet in the exalted ways that John speaks of Christ? Who else do we have being said to come from heaven to earth speaking of what he has seen and heard? Or of who else is it said, he who comes after me is ranked before me because he was before me, even though John was on this earth before Jesus was. We don't see anyone else spoken of in those ways. Because Christ is not a mere, uh, merely a human Savior. He is the God-man. And Christian, again you know this, but I'll not miss an opportunity to repeat it to you, that is at the very heart of the Gospel. Because if you lose the person of Christ, you lose the work of Christ. If Christ is not divine, the Gospel falls flat. The divinity of Christ is like the crucifixion and it's like the resurrection. If you deny it, the whole Gospel unravels. Because Jesus can only do what He does because He is who He is. If Christ is a mere man, atonement is impossible. Not to mention the virgin birth in which Christ is conceived as the sinless Savior in order to live the righteous life that we also need. And here's the second part of this point. Not only His incomparable glory in terms of His person, but His kingdom. Because Christ is who He is, that's why His kingdom is the incomparable eternal kingdom. You think about it. How, or, or answer this question. How many mere creatures is God eager to share His glory with? Zero. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is My name. My glory I will not give to another. And yet, Daniel says of Christ in chapter 7, in his, when he saw the vision, he says this of Christ, then to Him, the Son, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Because the kingdom is the kingdom of the Son of God. When John the Baptist said here, he must increase and I must decrease, yes, he was talking about the current transition that was happening, but more than that, the kingdom that John saw increasing is God's final kingdom. 
Israel, according to the flesh, was going to fade away just like John the Baptist. And this new kingdom called the church will forever grow and permeate the world. Just like it has and will continue to do so. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily make you a post-millennialist. I'm not a post-millennialist. I'm an all-millennialist. But, and I don't fall out with my post-millennialist friends, but Christ's kingdom is given the glory it is given because its king is who he is. He is the greater David whom David himself called Lord. Okay, that brings us to the second point of doctrinal instruction. Second point. We learn, excuse me, we learn secondly of Christ's sovereign rule and care for his people. We learn of Christ's sovereign care, excuse me, Christ's sovereign rule and care for his people. And I'm getting that from these words the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Last week we saw how John the Baptist said, A man can receive nothing unless it is given him from above. And here John says that all things have been given into the hand of the Lord Jesus. To have something in your hand, to hold something in your hand is a symbol of authority and government. The Father has entrusted all things to the Son's care and rule. And Christian, among that all things, what Jesus draws peculiar attention to is that you are in His hand. Think of John 6. When Jesus says, all of those that the Father has given to Me, I will lose none, but will raise Him up on the last day. Or John 10.28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Believer, let those words land on you. All things concerning you and this world are in the wise governing hands of Christ. And that is good news because Christ is the most qualified to be master and manager of all. Sometimes we think we want things put into our hands. As though we have the wisdom of what is good for us. Trust me, you don't want all things put into your hands or anyone else's hands. That would be a disaster. In fact, the last time that God entrusted humanity into the hand of Adam, we all know how that ended. But Christ, the last Adam, the better Adam, who is faithful to God not just as a servant, but as a son, who has the Spirit without measure and always speaks the words of God, Christ is a trustworthy Savior to govern and steward all things pertaining to us. Like Spurgeon said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, if, if there were any other set of circumstances that would have been better for you, divine providence and love would have put you there. The good shepherd knows how to shepherd his sheep. Christian, every providence you receive has first been filtered through divine wisdom, 
What is sent to you is sent from a wise king. And not only is he wise and good, he is powerful and gracious. He is above all. Which means nothing in heaven or in earth possesses the power to snatch you out of His hand. Because He possesses the Spirit without measure and He gives that same Spirit to you to strengthen you. And He gives you the grace that you need as you need it so that you don't faint in the day of adversity. More than that, not only is He our King who governs, our prophet, but He is our priest who intercedes for us like He did with Peter, you remember, before Peter's betrayal. And Jesus told Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Christian, the only reason you have not made utter shipwreck of your faith a thousand times is because of Christ's sovereign rule and loving care for His church. And if He has been faithful thus far, then I think it is right for us to trust Him with the future. And Christian, let me say this to you. This this is not just theoretical. This is not impractical. Part of preaching is it's an extension of pastoring your actual people, not just throwing out generic lessons and truths. I know for a fact as your pastor that some of you are facing things, providences that are difficult, that have caused you anxiety or at least tempted you to severe anxiety and worry. And I don't know of any better cure for anxiety than the words, all things have been given into the wise, loving, good hands of Christ. Let that be your strength and your peace. Thirdly, third doctrinal instruction. We learn the necessity of looking to Christ as our prophet. We learn of the necessity of looking to Christ as our prophet. And I'm getting this from verse 32 and 34. He who comes from heaven testifies to what he has seen and heard. And verse 34, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without measure. One of the offices that Christ executes for us as mediator and one that we need so badly, by the way, is the office of prophet. A prophet reveals God and His will to us. And you know why we need a prophet to reveal God's will to us? Because we, by nature, are ignorant. The Baptist Catechism asks the question, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And the answer it gives is this. Christ executes the office of prophet in revealing to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. Now, notice it says He reveals the will of God to us for our salvation by His Word. Christ's Word. Now, that's not just referring to the words that Jesus Himself spoke in His earthly ministry. Okay? as though the red letters in your Bible are really important. These are, these are Christ being prophet for me, but all the black ones are just kind of take it or leave it. Okay? And, and by the way, that's one of the reasons that I don't actually think red, red letter, no, no embarrassment if one of you has one right now, 
But I don't think red letter Bibles are helpful because they give that impression that Christ's prophetic office is limited simply to the words that He spoke while He was here in His earthly pilgrimage. Christ is our prophet in giving us His Word, meaning the entirety of inspired revelation. From Genesis to Revelation. Because here's the thing. All revelation that has been given to us in the Scriptures are given by Christ through His Spirit administering His prophetic office to His church. And so for instance, I'll give you a, a text for that. An amazing text. 1 Peter 1.11. encourage you to read it more carefully later on. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Peter says this, of this salvation, the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching. So here you've got the Old Testament prophets and they're searching their own writings, trying to understand. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.11, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Who revealed Old Testament prophecy to the prophets? The Spirit of Christ. And so, Christ was exercising His role as prophet when the Spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophets. He continued to execute that office during His earthly sojourn. And He continues that office as prophet after His ascension. Through His apostles in giving us New Testament revelation and through His pastors and teachers explaining and applying His Word to His church. All of our knowledge of God comes through this great prophet who speaks of what he knows. And what that means, Christian, is that we need to give careful attendance to the words of this great prophet. Apart from Christ's Word, we remain ignorant of God. And ignorance, in the words of the Helmus Abrakel, ignorance deprives a man of all grace and leads him to eternal damnation. A man cannot be saved without faith. And a man cannot have faith without the knowledge of Christ. And he cannot have the knowledge of Christ without learning from Christ who is the great prophet. Because Christ speaks not secondhand, but of what He knows and has seen of heavenly things. And His testimony is therefore trustworthy. That brings us to our application as we come to a close this morning. I have three brief applications. Three brief applications, each corresponding to our doctrinal points. Number one, Christian. This is the takeaway from our passage. Number one, worship Christ. Worship Christ. He who is above all deserves the highest praise. Christ is far above any mere creature he is God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. He is exalted above the angels, above any creature, and He is preeminent in all things. He is the King of glory. I didn't know, I, I forgot that we were singing Holy, Holy, Holy this morning. He is the King of glory. 
that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, of whom the seraphim are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And therefore, Christian, let us on earth join our hearts with those voices in heaven in worshiping Him who is God over all, blessed forever. Whatever praise is due to the Father is due to the Son because the Father has given all things into the Son's hands. Second application, Christian, trust Christ. First of all, worship Christ. Secondly, trust Christ. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our Helper, He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Christian, remember that the One who bled and died for you and now intercedes for you at God's right hand is the One who sits enthroned as the King of kings to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And therefore, when you're tempted to doubt His love, all you have to remember is is if His eye is on the sparrow, how much more is it upon me for whom He shed His blood? You know, sometimes it's, it's often the most simple, basic truths that buoy up our faith in the midst of the tempest and trial. And when the floods surround us, simply to remember the basic promises of God, He shall never leave you nor forsake you. So Christian, trust Christ. None can snatch you out of His hand. And lastly, last third application, listen to Christ. Listen to Christ. Psalm 24, verses 4 and 5, Show me Your ways, O Lord. Teach me Your paths. Lead me in Your truth and teach me. Have the attitude, Christian, with God's Word like Samuel had that says, Speak, Lord, for Your servant listens. Christian, come to this prophet of prophets and beseech Him that He would guide you and instruct you. Because His words are the words of God and He is God speaking to you from heaven. Instructing your heart and your mind on the way to heaven. Proverbs 2, 3-5 tells us if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding and if you seek wisdom as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and will find the knowledge of God. Christian, be preoccupied in reading Christ's Word. Be preoccupied in sitting under the preached Word and the means of grace. Because it is by these means that Christ, our prophet, gives us the knowledge of Himself. And it's through those means that Christ makes wise the simple. It's through those means that He replaces ignorance with heavenly knowledge. Do not neglect His instruction, but rather let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because happiest and wisest are those who are well instructed by Christ. And most useful to others are those who are well taught by Christ. Unbeliever, I want to close by speaking to you. 
the father said of his son when he bore witness from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, if you do not heed his voice, you need to know that he will not always speak with you. His patience will not always last until tomorrow. And He will, if you refuse Him, He will either remove His Word from you or He will remove you from this world. And then it will be too late. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Unbeliever, come to Christ who is the prophet that we need. Who reveals God to us. Who is the the priest we need who makes atonement for sin, and who is the great King that we need, who holds all things in His hand. Trust Him. Even if you've been His enemy for years, if you trust Him this morning, you will find Him to be a most willing Savior and a gracious Savior who will embrace and welcome you and lead you in the way everlasting. And so, sinner, trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would write Your your Word upon our hearts. We thank You for John's testimony of Christ. Father, we pray that we would have enlarged and greater views and understanding of the glory of Your Son. The gift that He is that You have given to us. Father, we pray that Your Spirit would apply Your Word to our hearts as we each have different needs. Your Spirit searches our hearts. He knows us inside and out. He knows our struggles. He knows our sins. And so we pray for Your Word to be applied as medicine to us each uniquely and corporately. Father, glorify Your Son in the salvation of sinners. He is above all because He came from Your right hand. And He sits now at Your right hand as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that we would give Him the honor that He is due. That we would honor Christ as holy in our hearts. That we would trust His sovereign care, His disposal of providence and His care for our lives. And that we would learn from Him. That we would give ourselves reverently and attentively to His Word. We thank You for Christ. We pray for all who are here who don't know Him. Father, draw them into the fold, we pray. Be merciful to sinners. Grant sight where there is blindness. And Father, we do pray that You would bless Your people as we draw near to the table to celebrate and to remember the glories of the sacrifice of Your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Help us to do so with honesty, transparency, and humility, and with thankfulness of heart and rejoicing of heart. We pray that You would help us in all these things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.